Shemai Achroiso. Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories while hopefully inspiring the creation of some new ones. My name is Gideon. And I am Richard. Do you think we need to own up to our uh, mispronunciation of Achroiso uh, for the last five weeks? Well, we might as well. So, uh, Richard and I are learning Welsh. We are Welsh learners. Um, and we thought it would be very clever and put uh, a little bit of Welsh at the beginning of our podcast intros. Uh, and my dear mother, who has listened to every single one of these episodes, most of them before they even went out, has just pointed out to me that there is uh, a mutation uh, on the C of Croiso. So it becomes Croiso, a Treglad an aspirant. Huh. I love that it took her, uh, what, about six weeks? She's finally decided to tell you. Thanks, thanks, Mrs. Jensen. Uh, right, so we're at my apartment right now. We've just wrapped with Gareth Thomas Wynne Reese, uh, Gareth T. W. Reese, who is a Welsh multidisciplinary designer, uh, currently based in Germany, working for Adidas Futures, which is uh, a department of Adidas that designs effectively footwear for the future. Um. He was over in New York. I think he's been here for the entire summer on a, a rotational program where they bring uh, star designers from all over the world to, to meet together and work together in New York. Yeah, but he's worked, prior to that, worked all over the world in Europe, uh, Japan. Um, so he spent a lot of big time in London as well. And he's worked for some awesome brands, uh, Land Rover, uh, Sky, Tahatsu, Tahatsu, and, and obviously now Adidas. So um, some pretty pretty awesome insights that we uh, we gleaned from Gareth. Yeah, and I think he had some some great things to say, especially um, stuff about inspiring and lifting up Welsh talent. So mm. I think that's one thing to really uh, one th- one thing that makes this really worth listening to. Yes. So without any further ado, we give you Gareth T W Reese. So before we came on, Gareth, you were, you were about to tell us about your... My job at Adidas, basically. Yeah, and what, is the, what is the job, just that you've... And this is the job you're doing now, right? Just yeah, yeah. So I'm, um, I work in the Adidas Future team, which is the innovation department for the brand. So we look at future processes, uh, materials, and product design years ahead. So, um, yeah. You say years ago, like how 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 far ahead? Like the stuff you'd be doing now, like how long would that take to kind of I'd say someone's foot? Um, so we're probably looking around like three to ten years ahead. So um, the rest of the business unit, um, and usually the stuff that we design, perhaps uh, doesn't end up one to one on the foot, but it's it's. It's kind of leading, uh, leading the innovation and, and the kind of principles and the concepts that go on to be uh, the products that you see on the shelves or on the on the on the foot or uh, um, in the stadiums or whatever, you know. Wow. So, and how do you even approach that? Because you know, I think we can all imagine what. Well, I can imagine what it's like to design a shoe today, but like trying to think you know even even five years out ten years out with how fashion changes technology changes like how are you yeah how are you doing that it's 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 not an easy job and you you might think you might think oh you just draw something cool and you expect that to be uh trendy or stylish in the next three or four years but that's not the case we 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 have a great team of like cross 
disciplinary designers and engineers and sports scientists and psychologists that actually um, we're almost forecasting what's going to happen. And we, we, we look at everything. We look at like socioeconomic, we look at sustainability, we look at um, cultural changes and things like that. So it's, it's not as, as simple as just drawing something, you know, that's going to be attractive. And we, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not the, it's not the easiest, but we have so many, you know, clever people who, who are looking at all types. We're looking at other industries as well for, mm. for inspiration. So. That's incredible. So are we talking things like, um, self-tightening laces and new materials for the, the soles of the shoes and or are we are you thinking more like he's digging self-tightening back to the future yeah was, I remember when I was like they're already, yeah they're already out 15 I think <laughs> self-tightening laces oh, the little curly ones I don't know they just sort of go <laughs> suck down on the foot or is it more like this is what's gonna this is how it's gonna look as opposed to this is how it's gonna be made or used I think it's a bit of everything. So uh, we have to look at how we produce stuff as well. So I think most companies in the world at the minute are looking how how they're producing mm-hmm. stuff in with responsibility and um, and a care for the environment. Uh, and also the the processes that you know we want to be faster to market as well. So the way we make stuff. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of things that. Have you say what's going to come in the future? I, I would not be able to tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. And, and so, how did how did this all start? Like, when did I mean we talked a little bit, um, kind of before we before we started recording. But when did this whole? How did you even get into kind of design in the first place? Like, in, in terms of like when you studied it at home, because you grew up in um, near Ammonford, wasn't it? Yeah, Caplendra, yeah. a small village. With a big, uh, big industrial estate. I think the industrial estate is bigger than the village itself. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think I was always interested in cars as a kid. I think my mother always told me uh, when my grandfather was um, was was alive. I kind of there's a there's a weird almost memory of me being with him. On the on the side of the road, and he used to apparently used to tell my mother that I used to knew, know every car on the road. So if there's a if there's an Escort or a Cavalier back in those days, a Nova or something coming up the road, I knew exactly what it was by shape and by the appearance of it. Wow. I thought that's that's quite you know that's something it's quite bizarre you know to, for for a kid to be that obsessed with the shape and stuff of of things and. How old are you, do you think? I think I was like three. I was oh, really small. Wow. I assumed you were talking nah, 10 or no, something. No, no, that is young. No, uh, really young. And I would always draw, I think I was, I kind of grew up, uh, I'm not, I was not a lonely child, but I, my, my brother and my sister are a lot older and they left mm-hmm. home and I was almost on my own. I have to kind of like entertain myself in the house. I'd always draw and do some creative stuff. And my mother always said, oh, are you, you're going to be an architect or something like that. Mm. And I think through teenage years, um, I didn't really have a focus. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I think I was telling you guys earlier, I almost, uh, I wanted to be a mechanic because of that passion for cars and things. Mm. And I, I, I think through my naivety and my uh, laziness as a teenager, um, I kind of missed the deadline for, for tech uh, to, to apply for that. And, 
I thought, oh, I, I should just continue and go into um, going to sixth form. I think that was the most easiest thing to do. Uh, and I picked uh, art and design technology and I had, had great support from the teachers at the time. They were like, oh, they, they must have saw a potential in something. And, and I think the the kind of the passion for cars kind of came back in and I thought, oh, maybe what if I could actually design something like this? So, and I bought a book <laughs> off Amazon uh, and then I just went from there. I, just, I kept drawing stuff, uh, drawing cars and drawing, um, you know, trying to come up with concepts and stuff like that. And um, I remember my art teacher, um, I said to her, could I do an art project for my A-level, just drawing cars? And then my my final piece would be designed for the next decade. And that, that basically was the basis of my portfolio going into university. Then. Yeah. So it's it kind of a little bit of an advantage yeah. in that sense. And uh, like I said, the, the teachers were very supportive. It's not a very conventional art project. Yeah, so I can't yeah. imagine there were many yeah. other students. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine you, you must have been a bit different in terms of like, I what you were. yeah I guess they, they must have saw something and thought like, just let him crack on <laughs> doing this thing and he's good at it so um and did you think it was could be a career at that point or was that was was there a moment you remember where either someone said to you or you thought like yeah I, I could actually do this as a living yeah I my my design technology teacher would always say oh you, you're gonna do well you're gonna go far and, I, and at the time it would go in through one year and out the other you know I wouldn't yeah. I would not listen to that, and um, and I think uh, yeah, around sixteen, seventeen, I thought hmm, maybe I can. I started looking at university, um, see what possibilities there were there, and um, yeah, I, I applied for Coventry University. Their transport design course is one of the like one of the one of the most known, well known in the world, and um, I got accepted to Coventry, and then I had. Um, I had an interview coming up at Swansea, Swansea Met, or it was Swansea Institute at the time. Um, and I thought, oh, I already made my mind up. I think oh, I'm going to go to Coventry. Um, and as, as soon as I turned up in Swansea, I just, I loved it. I thought the facilities were far better and the the staff were very welcoming. Um, and I just thought why go so far away from home you know like 20 minutes down the motorway and I could study something that I have a passion for and and also the the the, the student numbers were lower so you'd have about 20 people on Swansea, on the Swansea course hmm. and in country you'd have about 150 so you'd have to make an appointment to see a tutor which in Swansea you could just walk in and and and, and you know it it gives you a chance to develop as well as a designer and and to do different things and I wasn't so necessarily, I wasn't massive, I think, like from what I said, I'm not a ma- massive petrol head, um, but I, I, I just had a, that, that eye for, you know, the, the aesthetic and how we make the emotional aspect of cars. That's what mm. really interested me. And I think that's transcended to other things as well. So, you know, the emotional aspect of the products that we see, you know, every day. Um, so... After, after Swansea, um, just, so just yeah, probe on that. So, how, how how applicable is it? Like when you're just thinking about designing a car to designing a shoe or um, a piece of a power. Like, are you applying the same principles, or like do, uh, do people really specialize? Like, do you need to think? Oh no, I, I have to just focus on this one thing. 
I definitely think the emotional aspect of design is really strong. Like if you can engage a consumer in a, in a certain way, um, it, it always comes down to think, right, you, when you see something on the shelf or in the shop or whatever online, you think, well, that's cool. And that, mm. that's your initial, if that's your initial gut reaction, then it's, it's a good design in that sense. It's already hooked you into buy it, you know, mm. um, it's but the same in it's the same in you know in, in brand design. We're always asking like, how do you want people to feel? Yeah, yeah. But that's ultimately the thing that yeah. we're, we're we're looking to determine. And I think that's what I'm interested in most as a designer. Like, we we can look at all the technical aspects or the functional aspects of a design, but actually, how does that make you feel? The core essence of all that. How does mm. it make you feel as a when you use it or when it's you know, it sits in your in your living room or, or or it's on your feet how does it feel you know mm. um i think that's that's the most important thing uh, and I, I think it always will will be we, we design for humans and humans are emotional um mm-hmm. and yeah we we always have that need um and when we talk about uh, artificial intelligence perhaps taking over my job one day yeah and I don't know if that would be the case because I think maybe artificial intelligence lacks this empathy, you know, that mm. the humans have. Mm. We're just the like raw touch and feel of products, or they might be able to design a great pattern or a, you know, I don't know, uh, an useful pro- product. Mm. But maybe there's a there's an element perhaps that will be missing. I think a human will always finish. Mm. A design product you know um if that makes sense yeah no yeah. it does because yeah. i was watching this thing there's a fantastic docuseries on netflix called abstract oh, and right. there's an episode about right. a shoe designer there's an episode about a car designer <clears throat> and he was talking about um automated cars and um and he was saying if if a car be- becomes something that the person doesn't engage with so much anymore it's just a box that you you travel in mm. Will people care still about the form and about the shape and how it makes them feel, or will it just become totally utilitarian? Yeah. Well, there's the self-identification, but there's also just the, the the physical. Like we look and we're attracted to things, you know, whether it's you know the, the opposite sex or <laughs> yeah. uh, whatever. What and, and as long as there are competing brands, they're always going to be trying to outdo each other. And form and style are one of those. Yeah. Yeah. What you said was really interesting in terms of um, like ownership for the next next generation is becoming less and less. So you look like as a car, like um, I think his name is Ralph Child. No, it is. Yeah, Ralph Giles. Yeah, yeah that rings a bell. Yeah. Um, he was saying that people care less about the the car if it's automated, and perhaps you will get to that point because it would just become a service, hmm. just using it. But you don't own that thing. Um, so that might totally flip the way that the car looks. It become less dynamic, more of a... Utilitarian, utilitarian yeah. Like a box on, like you said, a box on wheels. Um, well, I think it maybe does... If I think about when I went to hire a zip car, which is a car share here in New York, I definitely, it's not such a... What it looks like is not on my mind, but it, yeah. it does pay a factor. When I, if I have a couple of options and they're the same yeah. cost, I'm probably going to go for the one yeah. that is aesthetically pleasing, but it's no by no means the the main driver. Yeah. Proximity to me or price become far greater yeah. decisions. They become a I think they become a level of service that you would pr- probably subscribe to that would uh, kind of allude to what you 
what he using at the time and yeah, the user experience around yeah, booking it becomes more yes important. exactly and if it's a box on wheels perhaps then that box on wheels actually uh, represents this environment rather than you you know what i mean so it's part of new york city or mm. part of berlin or whatever and i think and then i think this what you said in terms of like desirability i think that would always come into the ownership part there's always going to be people who want to own mm. cars bikes you know and and shoes and you know Mm. And and that and that will always remain, I think. Um, mm. I think st- status symbols can show up in many ways. Like if you've discovered a new, uh, yeah, going on the car example, the car share service that offers something better than someone else used, or maybe is even a better service or better experience. Like even your knowledge of that mm. in itself is like a, a unique form of status, um, or status. Go, use the American version there. No, you're right, but I hate status. I hate, I hate when the word or the the concept. the concept. I hate when people talk about it, and I hate when I find myself talking about it and buying into it. It irritates me. Yeah, it's never so evident here. I feel in the US, it's stat- status is the biggest thing. I, mean, you, I often get flights here in the US in between cities, and being at the Delta shuttle and seeing everyone line up in like premium sky one, two, three, four, and then people are so like panicky about like going in front of each other yeah they don't even know where to queue do they it's right. like they're just like waiting around the front but they're in the row six or something for, yeah. the, for the queue but i never queue to get on a plane i sit there yeah, until the last person on because guess what i've already got a seat <laughs> it's already been assigned to me i don't need to stand in line yeah. jokes on them um, so speaking about uh kind of travel um yeah you've spent a big chunk of your professional career living Kind of abroad you mentioned japan but uh, obviously germany uh, obviously you lived in london for a long time and then or for some time and now you're here in the us what's it i guess what's it been like living abroad and then what's it like being a welshman living abroad like how have you managed to keep or what your welsh identity throughout that time if i'm uh, totally honest i feel more patriotic away from wales i think it's something that's very like it, it's something that happens and um and when you speak to people all over the world that don't really know about wales or yeah, and you're undeniably welsh like i think <laughs> gideon's de- gideon's welsh i'm questionable but you i think you know within i think 30 seconds of speaking to you you're, people are clear even if they don't know you're welsh i'm sure they yeah they, they know something it was bizarre in in um in london i had it on twice on two different occasions they thought i was south african it's like, mm-hmm. when does a South Wales accent sound like South African? When when you're not listening. Yeah. <laughs> when you've had a couple of pints, maybe. Um, but, yeah, I, I I definitely feel proud to be Welsh. And uh, I have to be honest, I make people know where, where I'm from. And I, you know, I like to represent uh, our country. And um, I don't think it has any... Um, has had any uh, negative effect on my career? Actually, it's probably had a positive effect. It's maybe stand out a little. Exactly, it's an as identifying it, yeah, feature. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, perhaps um, as as I've developed as a person, as a designer, is something that I've oh, I think thought I should play this up. It's it's um, it's boring if everyone's the same, right? So exactly. and, and it, I'm actually um, I'm very proud of my you know our language and the background and. And our country and I, th- I think and the people I speak to in my career they actually they think it's really cool that they you know, perhaps they didn't even know Wales exist or 
the Welsh language exists. They just think it's a dialect of English. Mm. And then I write some words out for them and they're thinking, wow, this is nothing like English. I'm like, no, it's not. Yeah, better believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Um, it's, I, the, it's the second oldest language in uh, Europe. Predates Latin. Yeah. The only other oh, one is Basque. Basque, mm. yeah. Pro, both pre-Roman, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm first language Welsh. I... Uh, spoke grew up speaking Welsh to my mother and my uh, my fiance now and um her family my family and I went to a Welsh school you know we did Spanish through Welsh and we did maths in Welsh and yeah. it's uh, it's just a normal way of life where I'm from in Carmarthenshire you know that's that's a normal thing you know um so, so, on, so you said your, your fiance as well so you you you've been together since did you meet before we, 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 yeah, we've been long, uh, together a long time, uh, 14 years. Wow. So we met in school. Uh, oh. Yeah. Has she been traveling around the world with you? She's, she's been popping over here and there. Um, she came to Japan uh, when I was in Japan, and she now lives in Germany uh, as well. Um, and she's, she's been in New York. For, she's a teacher. Of course, I met her. Yes, yes. I met her at the, so week, she, at the New York Welsh meetup. So she's a teacher, so she has a lot of holidays very jealous of that um and she she loves traveling as well so it's great if i can i'm lucky enough to travel in my job and yeah she can join us that's fantastic you know uh, um you so i spoke about the new york welsh meetup but obviously we've got the new york welsh society here and i do find that when we're abroad welsh people tend to gravitate towards each other um, and you know if you spot a welsh flag definitely going to go over and say hello are there welsh communities or anything like that in Japan or Germany or anything? This is the most kind of profound community I've I've seen, like in terms of like online presence and 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 just you know the the, the presence within the city. Um, I didn't feel I have to be honest. I I know there's a lot of Welsh people in London, but I never felt that there was a community there. To I know. I know there is the the, the London Welsh society mm. and stuff like that, but I, at the time I didn't. I felt a bit disconnected. Do you, from think, do you think that's probably because yeah. it's, it's it's so close? Yeah, I think you so. don't need it, and also there's it's almost too big and disparate. Yeah, once you get further away, the the people get smaller, but it also becomes somehow yeah. more meaningful. Perhaps in London is everyone just getting on with their daily lives, and then perhaps if they want to go home, they just yeah. And like you said, home. being further away yes. heightens the feeling of missing home. So if you're only you know three hours away on the M4 then <laughs> and then in Germany there, no there's not much of a Welsh community there there is um a Welsh another Welsh designer where I work with so not in my team but uh, he's from Swansea is he Swansea lad yeah in Germany how old is yeah, he yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he must have been like 27 28 oh. yeah he's a he's a top lad and go for a beer now and again and Oh, that's good that you guys and he's he speak Welsh too can you both like, no, converse in Welsh no he's, he doesn't speak Welsh but he's a he's a very proud Welshman we, we, we're always watching the you know the qualifiers and stuff from oh yeah pubs in Wales and oh how about that how about that it was, uh, it was that Ireland game man what gut, a, the gutting absolutely gutting where did you watch that uh, I watched it with um, uh, James his name is a Welsh guy in Germany and uh, we watched it in the local pub called the Thirsty Baker. There's a lot of expat community in in Germany, you know, as a mm. whole. And uh, so there's a lot of Irish pubs and, you know, British-themed pubs. Um, 
Were there, were there any other Welshmen in the bar watching it with no. you? No. Any Irish? There was loads of Irish yeah. people, yeah. Yeah, then. Yeah. It's just gutted, because they, they, they actually came over to apologise, <laughs> like, because oh. they didn't play very well themselves in that game. No. Yeah. It's the only time we've been behind the whole qualifying, wasn't it? Yeah. The last four it's the only minutes. game we lost. Yeah. Oh, remarkable. Um, can I ask you a design question? Yeah. Because this is something I've noticed about myself as I, as I get older and I try certain tasks. You've got about fashion advice again. <laughs> yeah. What, sh- what do you think of my shoes? Um, I, f- I find that it, I have a hard time creating something from nothing. A blank page. Mm. I, not, I don't find it intimidating. I just find it uninspiring. And I find that when I've got something in front of me, I can see what needs to be changed. So as a designer, especially a future designer, you must be just pulling concepts out your brain and out the air all the time. How do you find the inspiration every time? That That is the most, like, would you say you have a blank piece of paper? It's probably the most difficult things uh, to start, but it's also the most exciting because you, you know what you could come up with, you know? Um, yeah, I, you have to be very open-minded. If you're designing for, like, concepts of future or, you know, things a couple of years down the line, you have to be open-minded. You can't just expect um the things that you design now will be relevant in in two or three or five or ten years time mm. so you, you have to perhaps as well think of um the unexpected as mm. well uh, and that's always that's kind of my philosophy i never look back at my past work or archive work or anything that's been done before because mm. i think if you do that then you don't come up with anything new. It's already been done. It's just a rehash, you know. Do you, do you, Ob- yeah. Obviously, obviously, there's there's points where you can improve stuff. Oh, that's that's no doubt about that. But if you're coming up with a brand new concept, a new way of working, a new way of using something, or you know, just a new aesthetic or a language, like then then experiment. You know, we. That's awesome. Is there anything you've? Uh, well, actually, let me ask this. Have you ever gone back and look at some of your future work from the past and seen whether, like, it's well, come true? Back to the future again. Back to the future. Yeah, <laughs> like, like some of maybe five years ago where you were trying to forecast five years into the future. Um, so imagine it would be kind of like yeah. people, I don't know, today who worked on Star Trek, the original series. Because they do that sometimes. I think it was, an, I saw an article on, they looked at Star Trek and they, because it's not, I think, obviously we're still far into the event in future, but they were looking at technologies that are in Star Trek yeah, today. Did, uh, right. Transparent aluminium. I see. Yeah. Which actually is possible now. Transparent yeah. aluminium. Yeah. I can't even say it. Yeah. You can't. Um, okay. Yeah. And like they're all walking around with their little communicators that can do anything. Yeah. And now we've all got iPhones. Yeah. And a little like you <clears> press a button and you can just speak to someone. Wearable technology. <laughs> Wearable tech. Wear tech. It'll happen. One day, maybe. Um, there, there is something I, I can't think off the top of my head. Um, I'm always thinking, oh, this, this is going to happen in the future. Mm. Um, Anything that's come true? Not necessarily, because even if you didn't, even if you didn't get the credit for it, anything you thought, ah, oh, no, I can't believe that. Had the idea for it, but no, I didn't think it would come. So I threw it in the bin. <laughs> There's something that is a bit. I don't know whether it's. I don't know where it goes on the podcast, but my final project in uh, RCA, I went to study masters. My final project was a, 
an autonomous farm vehicle. And I, uh. it's a bit random. I picked a, I picked an industry where I know nothing about. I wanted to challenge myself and I learned a lot about agriculture. And it came from the, the premise of like, that there's going to be a kind of agricultural versus energy struggle in mm. the future in terms of we need energy, but we also need food. Mm. And with these mega cities growing all over the place, mm. and what what does a farmer find more lucrative now to use his land? You know mm. what I mean? Yeah, there's and so much pressures on farmers. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, people thought, oh, the Welshman is doing a tractor. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> there was that kind of mentality in in the college. I, I'm not from a farming background at all. I know nothing about farming, but I, I thought it was be nice to um, to kind of look into it and 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 see what opportunities were in the in the future for farming and um, autonomous tractors already exist. And I just thought, what, what's the next step of that? And you, you'd probably have a, and I, I, I designed and I, I built a, a mock-up and a model. And that was all, it was based, my thesis was based on this in terms of uh, an autonomous farm vehicle, unmanned, an, an unmanned system uh, that actually is a self, self-sustainable um vehicle hmm. so if you heard of anaerobic digestive systems yeah yeah like they use in farms now they put uh bio waste in them and they create methane and then mm-hmm. they they create electricity from it and farmers are finding this quite lucrative so i was i was just imagining these things are massive they're like the size of small factories what if that was scaled down in the future into the size of a car or something yeah and that it could power itself uh-huh. around a farm. So this, it was a bit blue sky and a bit I like see, crazy, yeah. but this vehicle would go, go around, do its work programmed, automated by a device. Mm-hmm. The farmer would just let it do its business. And then when it needs to top up its um, energy, which is the bio waste yeah. on the farm, you just top that up and then keeps regenerating. It keeps working 24 hours a day. Wow. And, um, yeah, I, I won an award for this in in at the college as well for transport design award. Um, I, I always thought, yeah, looking to the future and and this, that's that's something that's always like interested me. You know, uh, just anyone ever come calling and said, "Hey, I th- saw that thing," and actually we did us. Ah. It sounds really, really um, bizarre, but my it was my study into how someone would use a modern technology yeah like in the everyday life and also taking adjacent um industry technology into something new yeah that they they were looking for designers at the time and they they obviously picked up my they saw my project and picked up my business card and wow. was Adi- is this part of adidas looking into the future of farming we no <laughs> no <laughs> i think like it's like i said the design uh like your philosophy or your your, your principles can actually translate to other you, you said the design team was very multidisciplinary and you yeah, lots yeah. of people from different backgrounds see i'm very suspicious of modern technology and when people talk about ai i just think about terminator <laughs> so as you're talking about that, I'm like, okay, so what about these vehicles could go wrong, right? There's no fuel left. There's no there's no grass growing anymore because you know we're living in a, a future with a scorched sky. So what do they what do they need to eat for their biofuel? 
Humans. <laughs> you never know. I'm going to turn that. You're going to have script. to stop that happening. <laughs> yeah, this could be your movie. Yeah, you could base it in South Wales. Or something. It's more of a Black Mirror episode, yeah. I think, than yes. a full movie. Yeah, that's a brilliant series, actually. Talk about stuff that comes true. Yeah, yeah. They've the black black. So many Black Mirror things have manifested. Uh, this can't go in, but the bit about the, season one, episode one is the pig. Oh yeah, is the pre- the prime minister pig f-ing, and yeah. then like three years later, there was that whole thing about did Cameron put his f-ing in a pig yeah, mouth? Yeah, yeah. that like, was crazy. <laughs> and obviously the stuff with like the phones rating each other—that's all. Yeah, yeah, like, mm-hmm. that's that's very real. Well, his yeah. approach, right? Charlie Brooker's approach is about um, it, he doesn't come at it from a typical futurist angle. He's not thinking about the technology. He thinks about humans and kind of where they're going with technology today and just that's why it's a little bit into the future it's almost like that uncanny valley it's not like well that's what sci-fi tradition well actually true sci-fi traditionally is about the human condition ah but isn't it also i remember what's his name alan alan carr the elevator to the moon what's that guy's name famous sci-fi writer not alan carr i don't know not alan carr alan something um anyway he always used to say that if it doesn't sound like magic it's not sci-fi okay. it has to feel like magic versus yeah. something that that's what i found so unique about charlie book is that it's, it's not magic like you, it's five three years away yeah it's very tangible um because things like star trek which we've spoken about and star wars and the things that you have a fan base obviously they do count as science fiction because they're set in space and spaceships but it's not science fiction at its core because science fiction started out with stuff like hg wells Mm. and uh, like in the 30s and 40s there was like a rash of sci-fi writers and it was always about where we could go wrong as a human race essentially I always think as um, if you can imagine it then it can be possible Is it, one day it will be possible yeah and um, it's a bit of a dig at Elon Musk like he, he's <laughs> imagining that we colonize Mars I, I have a, a bit of like we should look after our own planet first, <laughs> rather than trying to colonize oh, another. I'm one, absolutely right? same. I think the same it? about um, what's it? Bill Gates building this city of the future in the desert. Yeah, like, yeah, but that's not the reality. Yeah, building it in a blank canvas, like yeah. <laughs> it's easier said than done. What's that? I you know, don't know he, Bill Gates is trying to build this um, kind of Arizona city of the future in the desert like a smart the world's first smart city you know everyone's trying to become smart cities but rather than adapt from existing infrastructure basically build it from the ground up which is fine but that's not a reality that's all right for the people who can live with that but what about everyone else is yeah that's just going to become that that is going to become a sci-fi movie where the you know the ultra elite yeah or live in this shining glass city and we're all running around in the ruins of new york looking in the bins (laughs) You've worked for some incredible brands like Sky, Land Rover, Adidas, we've all talked about. Um, any advice to anyone who themselves may be you know, looking to start their own professional career, whether it's in you know, any, well, any form of design? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, ca- I kind of believe that if you're a true designer, you, you could perhaps you could turn your hand to anything, I feel. Um, I'm... I'm my heroes, I know it sounds a bit strange, but my heroes are the multidisciplinarians from the from the twenties and the thirties and forties. Mm. Is is like Norman Belgedis. They're all here in New York, by the way. Raymond Louis and and Walter Dreyfus and people like that. And um, 
they can they were they were designing logos they were designing trains steamships and i i kind of i'm really inspired by that as as a designer like mm. one day you know i i i think my career reflects that in a sense like mm. i was doing graphics then i do like car exterior design advanced design interiors and i'm doing shoes you know and one piece of advice i would say to desi- like a design student or a graduate now is don't like I know it's sometimes it's easy for someone to be very focused in what they want to do, but sometimes you might find you're talented in something else as well, you know. Um, mm. And don't let that like get you down. Or, or if you if you're unable to find a job in what you want to do, then go and do something else. Um, yeah. well, it's amazing what it sometimes that can bring you a different perspective, anyway. Because yeah. you're and and to your point earlier, you're not a carbon copy because you're you know, combining a different skill or looking yeah. at something in a different way. You have so many different perspectives. Um, I think there's a couple of themes that, you know, in these chats that we have, it first is that, you know, looking in retrospect, it's easy to think if someone's path is quite linear, like even looking at yours, while well, you've traveled a lot, it seems like an amazing career that you've, you know, almost, it seems as if it was planned so perfectly. But once you dig into it, you realize there's a whole heaps of, you know, left and right roller coaster turns, mm. Um, which seems so true with with so many people, and then secondly, just just how hard sometimes you have to work. Yeah. Um, to well, yeah. To, to paraphrase what you just said, you always work hard, no matter what, no matter where you are. You take opportunities that are in front of you, but you keep an eye on the end goal, mm. right? And I think if you apply that to any discipline or any career, yeah, I think you'll go far. And, and having, I think, having a bit of a flexible goal, like in terms of you know not being too restrictive to your point around you know, diff- many different types of design. Like I think, you know, knowing that maybe you want to you know, have an impact in that field is very different to knowing that you want to you know, be in one specific area. Yeah, I think that's what I meant by take the opportunities that are in front of you. Because, mm. you know, it might it'd be very easy for you to go, don't really want to mm. do design for television yeah. uh, logos. Thanks very much. I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of feel that about some people I know back home in Wales will turn their nose up at a certain design role that was mm. not creative enough for me. Yeah. It just, I, I, for me, like the, the fact that it's not creative enough, you should work hard in that role. And that if you would be offered that job, it kind of defines what you don't want to do in the long run. Like, and I think there's a good, like if you need to pay the bills, you just do it. Right. Yeah. And, and also like find, find, make it creative, find yeah, exactly. something to solve. Like the creativity doesn't, shouldn't always be, it feels like a, sometimes a lazy attitude to expect something to be thrust upon you, like find it yourself. Yeah. I, I have to admit, Tenopolis was not the most creative role, but I was always doing stuff outside of work, mm. you know, and uh, I was designing shoes or whatever, or doing other, I would always be doing something outside of work, you know, and I mm. think that's what makes you driven. So you, you, you do your job, although it was creative to an extent, but perhaps not what you wanted it to be. Hmm. And I think it's it's good for people to do these these jobs that perhaps they don't really want to do in the long term because it gives them a good, if it's a good company as well, it gives you a good foundation of in a, being in a workplace, working with colleagues, getting to know people and you know, just that interaction, that daily interaction with people, you know. Definitely. And that can, yeah. I think that can give you the drive. Like I, yeah. I sometimes meet some people who almost have, maybe they have had that best dream job out of college. And I feel like not knowing what it's like the other yeah. side. I, God, I worked in a job in recruitment for a while and I knew it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And But 
God, it made me realize, made me appreciate wanting to get in somewhere else. And when I finally did, God, I, I really appreciated it. Um, I actually remember a bit of advice I got at the time, um, especially from my aunt, who said that, you know, just remember what, just look, but when you, when you look back at this moment in your life, what do you want to think you were doing? And it doesn't always have to be your, you know, your direct income, your career. You can be getting something, it could be where you're living, it could be the side thing you're doing. But just what what is it that you you were doing at that time? And be happy with that. You don't have to be doing everything at every time in your mm. life. Just know that what was that one thing? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Where if people wanted to find your work or have a look at you know your portfolio or even just get in touch if there was was something, what would be the best way for them to find you? Um, I, I currently I don't have a portfolio online, but um, I have. Email, Twitter, like what? yeah, I have uh, Instagram, like GTW Reese. If you, know, you can contact me on there, I'm always open to like collaboration as well. Just doing projects or side things. I do a lot of. Um, I'm always outside of work. I'm always trying to do something creative. You know, whether that's sketching or music or like collages or you know, whatever. Um, I think I just think it's within me just to keep busy. I don't watch TV or anything like that, mm. so. But yeah, I'm I'm very open to you know, I'm I'm very open to meet like-minded people you know as well and um, especially creatives from from Wales you know and it's it's nice especially when I meet them in the industry I always get a hug it's yeah. nice you know yeah. you know you're Welsh and you you get that welcoming and it, you just have that that bond you know straight away and it's good um, yeah so any. Welsh designers if you want any advice as well like I've had a let's say like a tough life it it might seem glamorous to a lot of people but you, there's a lot of sacrifices and mm. and work that's gone into like if you, to to that dream job you know um so I'm very happy to help uh, young up and coming designers and I think that's something within me I want to help like a next generation of designers mm-hmm. I I really see my career going into um into uh teaching sometime in the future mm-hmm. um so i think i have you know i have, have a lot to give have a lot of experience to give and to pass on to this this the, the kids the, the kids it makes me sound old but the, <laughs> the the students coming out of Wales, they're super talented people coming from wales and they just don't have the perhaps the awareness of what's possible and stuff mm. like that so you know for me to share my story with them as well and even if it inspires one one student or one one child or 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 someone who's really inspired to be a designer or an artist or a creative in that sense and i think that's i think i'd have done my job in that sense you know um and yeah uh, i'd be happy to give any advice or i think that's a great offer and i hope somebody listening takes you up on it yeah i have no doubt that you'll inspire many uh many more than just than just one people in the rest of your uh, in your career gareth but uh thank you so much for coming in john i've had a great time chatting to you and uh yeah wish you all the best wherever whatever the future may bring for you yeah thank you And now this next bit, we are very excited about. We are pleased to announce our first competition. We've got some tickets to give away. To commemorate 100 years since the end of World War One, 
Distinguished Concerts International New York presents the US premiere of Welsh composer Paul Milo's Requiem and Patrick Hoare's The Great War. Both pieces will be conducted by the composers themselves and performed at Carnegie Hall, no less, this Remembrance Sunday, or Veterans Day, Sunday 11th of November at 8.30pm. To register your entry, all you have to do is send an email to the info at newyorkwelsh.com email address. Good luck, everybody. And of course, a huge thank you to Distinguished Concerts International New York for providing the tickets. And as always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Yeah, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, then please do. The email is podcast at newyorkwelsh.com or you can contact us through any of the socials. Both our Instagram and Twitter are at newyorkwelsh. Okay.